0: Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus far the reading of God's Word and all God's people said, Amen. Well, as you might have guessed, I'm beginning a new series, a series preaching through the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, the epistle to the Ephesians. It comes to these Christians from the Apostle Paul at a time while he is under house arrest in Rome, somewhere around between 60 and 62 A.D. In chapter 3, verse 1, for example, Paul refers to himself as the prisoner of Jesus Christ. In chapter 6, he concludes the letter with this prayer request. For me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak This situation is also referred to in Acts chapter 28, again in Colossians chapter 4. And so Paul is there in prison. He's under house arrest, but he is not idle. He is busy. Prior to his imprisonment, he had already endured years, if you will, of other incarcerations and trials that ultimately led to his appeal to Caesar All of this kept him from being able to travel personally, to go and visit these young fledgling churches that he had helped establish on missionary journeys. And rather than diminish Paul's missionary enthusiasm, he takes his circumstances in prison and he figures out a way to keep on encouraging and nurturing these young churches. It struck me that God's providence is often a mystery, more often than not. What is God up to? What's going on here? Why did God allow the Apostle Paul to spend so much time in prison instead of being out there with those infant churches? That's, God, that's not the way I would have done it. This doesn't make sense. And we can ask similar questions about our own lives, what does God, why does God allow this or that to happen? Well, God sees deeper and further than we do. He easily overrides what appears to be disadvantageous to us. Perhaps if Paul had not been in prison, he would have been at Ephesus or Colossae. And he would have been speaking to them face to face, and we would not be reading this letter today because this letter would not have been written. I'm excited about preaching through this book, through this letter. This letter hits upon some of the biggest themes of the Bible. Chapter 1, and actually these spill over, they're not all neatly tucked uh, or separated by chapter divisions, but chapter 1 is kind of a doxology, a praise to God for His sovereignty in salvation. And that by itself is just packed with theology, packed with the power and beauty of God and His plan and His the personal aspect of it, and that it was executed in love. Directed toward his people from eternity past. And then he moves from there into the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Who as our substitute, as our Savior, took our sins upon himself. We are saved by grace and that not of ourselves. It is the free gift of God. And then the worldwide outreach of the Gospel. The Apostle Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, to the world. So those who were strangers to the covenants of promise have now been brought near by the blood of Christ, we read in Ephesians chapter 2. And so we begin to see the worldwide scope of the Gospel, part of God's plan from the beginning. Now this, this thing that had been a bud, a flower bud, is now opening up into its full, glorious bloom. And then He moves from there into the the mission and the function of the church and how Jesus died and He gave, gave us the church and He gave us the officers of the church and He gave us His Word to equip us for what? To go out and to live and to serve and to minister in His name. And so the whole... A a good bit of chapter 4. Most of chapter 4 is focused upon the church and how God established it, develops it, and uses it in our lives. And from there, he moves into just another almost uh, uh, parenthetical but powerful uh, reflection upon what it means to know Christ and how it sets us apart from the world. That antithesis between belief and unbelief. You used to be this way, but now you're this way. You used to act from these motives and, and with this view of the world, but now in Christ you see things differently and as a result you live differently. You speak to each other differently. You interact with others differently because of the Gospel. And then quite naturally he moves from that to get very local very personal, and here the great chapter, chapter 5, on marriage, on family, on husbands and wives, and how each of those reflect Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and the bride, the church, she represents God's people, and from there he talks about children, the fruit of that marriage. The godly seed that He had called Adam and Eve to produce in the first place to fill the earth. And so now in the Gospel, that initial call, that initial mandate that God had given the first man and the first woman is beginning to now be realized in the Gospel in Christ. And then He concludes in chapter 6 with our spiritual warfare and what's at stake, and what's involved, and what we need to do to be ready to go out and do what we've been called to do in this glorious task. Moreover, this short letter offers pastors the best of both worlds when it comes to preaching. I had someone ask me this week, do you do expository preaching or topical preaching? Well, this book offers both. We're going to do expository verse by verse through this book so that we know this book and understand this book and what it says. Second, it offers, as I've already demonstrated, a wide range of topical sermons that hit upon many theological and practical subjects. And while I don't want to scare you, I think I could spend years in this book. This epistle... Reveals the answer to the big questions. What is God up to? What is His purpose? And that answer is centered in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who is reconciling and uniting all things to Himself. This is the will of the Father, the expansion of His kingdom. And it comes by way of the church, which is his body, of which he is the head. He has placed his saints in the very midst of this fragmented, broken world. And he's done so for them to be an example, first, of the unity and the love of reconciliation for which Christ died and rose. And second... We, His people, the church, are the trophies of His grace. Wherein we are called to conduct ourselves accordingly in this fallen world. And so, let's get going in this book. Paul sends this letter to a church that is surrounded by a culture that is either indifferent to the gospel... Or, if it's aware of the church at all, it is likely hostile to the gospel. The Jews themselves, even those in the church, are resistant to the Gentiles being received. And thus Paul is dealing with both cultural and racial divides. Something the gospel overcomes. We should recognize that the gospel always speaks to difficulty. It always speaks to difficult cultures. It speaks to difficult personal issues. We are always dealing with hard things and hard people. And we should expect opposition and resistance. C.S. Lewis described his own conversion to Christ saying this, he said, I was like the prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. That's one of the greatest Christian authors of the last couple of centuries. That's how he describes his conversion. The most troubled and needy people and the most troubled and needy cultures provide fertile ground for the gospel. Light has the most profound effect on the darkest places. How do you think the gospel made it through the centuries all the way to reach you and me? Again, Paul finds himself imprisoned in Rome... And it would be very easy for him to throw his hands up and to quit. But this wasn't Paul's first time to be arrested. He was originally arrested by Jesus on the road to Damascus. The Word of God stopped him in his tracks. Stop. Police. Stop! It's Jesus. And he, it powerfully changed this enemy of the church into one of her greatest supporters. The power of God's Word then had already conquered his heart. He was an all-out enemy of Christ when he was called. He, was, he wasn't seeking Jesus, but Jesus sought and found him. And so Paul wrote to the Colossian church at roughly the same time he wrote this epistle to the Ephesians. And here's what he said He said, He gave thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. There's his and our qualifications. Qualifications, excuse me. I am certain that we have a room full of testimonies that would delineate how God's word and how God's will have dramatically transformed Broken lives. To summarize, in spite of Paul's current circumstances, two things apparently drove him to press on God's Word and God's will. You see, to be an apostle is to be God's messenger, one who is appointed by God to bring God's Word to his people. He was made an apostle, how? according to our text, by the will of God. That was God's doing, not His doing. It turns out that being in prison is not a significant barrier to God's Word or God's will. How often do we find excuses for not speaking up and not taking action? Excuses that are far less restrictive than imprisonment. It doesn't matter if the odds are against us, if God be for us, You see, we are all messengers of the same word. We have those same words right here in in the the Bible. Have been preserved for us. And so if if it's God's will to speak His word through His people, it it is God's will to speak His word through His people, publicly and privately, but it's not our message. It is God's message that's going forth. And so perhaps Paul, while he's sitting in prison, he knew his Bible pretty well, uh, being trained as a Pharisee. Uh, he may have remembered the words of Isaiah fifty-five eleven that say, So, God says, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Or perhaps he had in mind the parable of the sower and the seed. There's no doubt, based on Paul's other writings, that he completely understood the power of God's word and its ability to affect dramatic change. Moreover, this spreading of the word is clearly God's will, and thus Paul and us can move forward with complete confidence and boldness. His truth is marching on. And wherever it goes, it does its powerful work. Paul specifically expresses his understanding of this principle in Second Corinthians. What's great about having all of Paul's writings here is we know what he thinks. We know when he's in these... How does he get through this extreme, and this wasn't the only extreme situation he found himself in, and have such an amazing attitude, and is so encouraging and able to exhort others. Here's what he says. Now, thanks be to God, who has always who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And though and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God. The fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma of death leading to death, and to the other an aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Here's what Paul understands. Yes, I'm in prison and maybe nobody can see me today but one. God sees. And when He sees, and He sees you, or He sees Paul being faithful, doing what you can do, speaking His Word, ministering the Gospel, God says, that smells good to me. You smell good to me. It is an aroma. It is that smell that I smelled On a thousand Sunday afternoons after church, coming home, the smell of the roast that had been in the oven for three or four hours that my mother cooked every Sunday. Ah, that smelled good. could almost smell it when the car pulled in the driveway. I can still smell it right now when I talk about it. God says, when you... Do what I call you to do. I like it. And he will bless it. And he will do amazing things that you can't imagine. And so Paul doesn't know what God's going to do. Do you think Paul had any idea that a bunch of Christians and others would have gathered in Nacogdoches, Texas, which didn't exist, 2,000 years later to read what he was writing and to be encouraged by it? He had no idea. It didn't matter. What he did know is what mattered, is he knew God was way bigger than he was, and he would take those feeble efforts and use them. Now Paul could have been overwhelmed by how bad he was in the past. That could have paralyzed him, like it does for some of us. Oh, I was. I'm, I've been so bad. I'm so weak. I'm no good. After all, he had at one time threatened Christians. He had organized their arrest. He stood by holding the clothes of those who stoned Stephen to death. So what qualifies him to speak? Well, he was qualified by Christ, the work of Christ, the redemptive work. Jesus had redeemed Paul, and now he was commissioning Paul. This was God's work and God's will. Sometimes we might wonder if we are too flawed, too bad, or too something to be used by God. Well, Paul tells us elsewhere that he viewed himself. What was his self about? You know, Paul had really low self-esteem. He was the chief of sinners, according to his own estimation of himself. Man, the gospel is full of powerful paradoxes. Here's what 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. Please listen. Find yourself in here. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, how many are unrighteous? Paul says elsewhere there are none righteous. No, not one. Next message, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. I found myself several times in that list. And such were some of you, he says, but, one of my favorite words in the Bible, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. God loves to take the unlikely, even the apparently impossible, and use them to demonstrate His power. Again, would you find yourself in this next passage from Paul in 1 Corinthians? For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things that are despised as God has chosen, (coughs) and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no flesh should glory in His presence. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need us. He's all sufficient. If you're saved, it's all his work, not you plus him. You you bring one thing to the table sin. Here's, here's the next great word. But But of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And that's why Paul can say, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. The imprisoned Paul understood what every one of us needs to understand. You are not useful because you are smart and talented. You are useful, if you're useful, because you are his instrument. Again, I'm going to ask you that question I've already asked twice. I'll ask again. See if you can find yourself in this passage that Paul wrote. 1 Corinthians 2, And I, brethren, when I came to you, Did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know, to not know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. And a power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is why Paul can do what he's doing in writing this letter. He is also very careful to identify which God he's speaking of. He says, our Father, who is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a pagan god or goddess, nor is he just a force. He's not the man upstairs. The claims of the gospel of salvation are exclusive and unashamed. If we are to ever be effective messengers for God, it will begin by embracing this non-negotiable truth. 1 John 5 And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life, and he who has not the Son has not life. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given an understanding that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, this, is the true God and eternal life. You say, well that's awfully narrow-minded. You know what there's one cure and it's not if there's just one cure it's not narrow-minded for me to tell you not to take the other stuff. not to take the snake oil, not to take the placebos, but to point you to the one true Paul also addressed the saints who were in Ephesus. The Ephesian Christians were a minority in a hostile pagan culture. And he is reminding them of who they are and what they are. And I remind you that you are the saints in Nacogdoches, Texas. I try to do that every first day of the week when we gather here on Sunday morning. That's what this table is about. And while our culture is not nearly as pagan and hostile as Ephesus, nevertheless, there is plenty in our culture that is opposed to the kingdom of God and we are to be saints. That is, we are to be separate and distinct from those things. We are the leaven of the kingdom. And if you think it is simply a poetic metaphor, then you have forgotten what became of those first century Christians who lived in places, pagan places like Ephesus. Western civilization, as we have come to know it, was born in little bitty Christian churches like the one Paul was writing to. They could not see what God was doing through them. And I suspect that we can't see what God is doing through us. Paul writes, therefore, to the saints in Ephesus. But he also writes to the saints who have their faith in Jesus, to the faithful in Jesus Christ. We can remain holy in an unholy place because we have our union with Christ. We can overcome against all odds for one simple reason. As John writes in 1 John 5, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is He who overcomes the world but He who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So, even in the light of pagan Ephesus, perhaps especially in this light, Paul begins this letter with these words, verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul regularly uses these words of grace and peace to open his letters, thereby emphasizing the good news that God is our provider. His ill-deserved favor, grace. God's peace transcends all of our circumstances. And Paul should know. It would have been easy to talk of peace if Paul had been living in the lap of luxury. But God put him in a stressful circumstance, to say the least. And he still found peace. Paul knew his Bible, as I said, so perhaps now he was thinking of Isaiah's words. Isaiah 26, 3-5, you will, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, for he trusteth in thee. Trust in the Lord forever, for Yah, the Lord, is everlasting strength, for He brings down those who dwell on high. The lofty city, He lays it low, He lays it low to the ground. He brings it down to the dust. Or perhaps he took his own counsel that he gave the Philippians. In chapter 4 of Philippians 6-7, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. I I just see Paul in prison doing this. Self-consciously saying, Okay, I'm tempted to worry about the Christians in Ephesus, or worry about my own situation. Nope. Uh, Let me pray. Lord, I want to come before you. And I have some requests to make, but first let me just thank you. Thank you for what you've done in my life. Thank you for putting me here. I don't know exactly why or what's going on, but thank you. Let your request be made known to God. Then, Then what? And the peace of God, which passes or surpasses understanding, will guard your heart and your mind. The thoughts in Christ Jesus. You see, that's not a platitude. Maybe you've memorized that. I hope you have. That's real stuff. And it really works. If you really do it. There is power in peace. A quiet confidence that no matter how it appears, God is still in control. This was a lesson that Jesus taught his disciples and one that Paul now wants to bestow on these Christians. Again, Paul surely had heard this story. On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, Jesus said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now, when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. In the boat, as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. That just makes me smile to think of that. This raging storm, and Jesus is asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm and he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and they said to one another, who can this be? that even the wind and the sea obey him. Now, if that's true, which is, by the way, the same message God gave Job. You know what, Job, if I can take care of all of this, I've got you. You can trust me. And, of course, Job ends up saying, what? God, if the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, there are many days that I want to give up. And if I'm honest, sometimes as a pastor, I want to give up on you. And probably on more days than that, I want to give up on me. Because you let me down and I let me down. There's only one person that doesn't let me down. Paul knew that if God could overcome his sin, then he could be at peace knowing that God can accomplish what he cannot accomplish and what we cannot accomplish in our own strength. God's grace produces peace, which inevitably produces power. Part of the good news of the gospel is that human weakness is not the end of the story. There are no hopeless situations. And there are no hopeless people. God's word and God's will are still at work. And I'll close with two more passages from the Apostle Paul. Romans 1:16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. For the Jew first, and also the Greek. In 1 Timothy 1:8 through 12. Therefore, and this is an exhortation to us to follow what he just said about himself in Rome. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. To which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I have committed to Him against that day. Let's pray. O Lord, help us to see that each of us are believers in Christ by Your will, and was and continues to be by Your Word and Your will that makes, makes us remain and sustains us in Christ. In Your sovereign plan, You have made us to be saints in a particular place where we might live and minister to hard and needy people in a culture that is increasingly in darkness. Grant us Your grace and Your peace that we might also know Your power. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're constantly witnessing the ancient story of a world gone wrong. A world turned upside down. There is none righteous. No, not one. So how are we to react to the sins of the world? How are we to interact with sinners? These are two separate and important questions that require different answers. Sin is the failure to do what God requires, or else it is doing what God forbids. And since God's law is perfect, His law is an expression of His love, His law is good for us. Sin kills us. It kills families. It kills societies. The wages of sin is death. Sin separates us from God. Therefore, the loving reaction to the sins of the world is vigorous opposition. We must, as Jesus taught us in the Great Commission, go into all the world and teach them to observe all things whatsoever He has commanded us. When the world promotes sin, when it calls evil good and good evil, when it profanes that which is holy, we must step up, we must speak out, and do so without apology. Specific sins must be identified. And we should boldly call for repentance from those deadly sins. And when we do so, we are loving the world as we want to warn them to flee from the wrath to come. Ezekiel 22 says So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land. That I should not destroy it, but I found no one. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath, and I have recompensed their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. Now, our interaction with individual sinners usually, though, calls for a humble and gracious pity for fellow sinners who are in need of the gospel. The Apostle Paul instructs us, saying, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Those who are suffering as slaves to sin and who are under the burden, the heavy, heavy burden of guilt, need some good news. They need the love of God. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The work of Jesus, while fully upholding the righteous law of God, nevertheless was about redeeming those who were enslaved to sin. And that too is our work as members of the body of Christ. John three sixteen and 17, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Moreover, we must remember that when we were dead in trespasses and sins, God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And as he went out to preach the gospel, the Apostle Paul also remembered his own condition when Christ found and rescued him. Here's what he said, 1 Timothy 1. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer a persecutor, an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on Him for everlasting life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus came into the world to turn it right side up. And He did so. Because he is a friend of sinners. Our great and awesome God who keeps covenant and mercy with those who love him. And with those who keep his commandments. You are the faithful one. And today we bless your holy name and lift up high with praise and adoration. For you in your mercy condescended to us. You sent your son. God became a man that we might have a mediator. That we might be saved from our sins that we might have peace with You. Indeed, You have remembered Your covenant, and we bow with grateful hearts. Send us forth, O Lord, with Your blessing and with Your strength, and help us to remember Your covenant as well, that we might dwell forever in the house of the Lord. Bless this day for Your glory and our good. Bless our meal and our rest. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever whatsoever I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Amen. Amen.